0: All right, so why don't we pray, and then we'll get into Genesis 11. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, that it's so faithful, that it has everything we need, Lord, for life and godliness, Lord, that it's perfect, that it's infallible, and I pray that you would speak to us tonight. And as we learn some historical things, we learn some factual things, I pray that we would also learn some spiritual things, Lord, that you would speak to us your spiritual truths, things that are meant to take hold and take effect in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that you speak to us through your word, prepare our hearts. May we be humble before you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's pick up in Genesis 1, uh, 11, verse 1. We're going to go ahead and read through the chapter, get a good overview, and then go back through it and kind of unpack it. So Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, "'Come, let us make bricks, and bake them thoroughly.' And they had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, "'Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower, whose top is in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth.' But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, "'Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language.' And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth." And this is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old begot Arphaxad two years after the flood. After he begot Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. And then Arphaxid lived 35 years and begot Salah. After he begot Salah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Salah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Salah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. And after he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. And then Peleg lived 30 years and begot Reu. After he begot Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Reu lived 32 years and begot Serug, After he begot Serug, Reu lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. This is really a linguistic test here. <laughs> Sarug lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Sarug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. And after he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives, the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Izcah. But Sarai was barren, and she had no child. And Terah took his son, Abram, and his grandson, Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law, Sarai, and his son, his son, Abram's wife. And they went out from them, from Ur, of the Chaldeans, to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So, a lot of names there. A lot of interesting names. Names that I would not name my child personally, but we can learn some things from this nonetheless. So back to verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. So the entire human race had one language. This is the first time something like this is noted in Scripture, and we see no indication of any varying dialects prior to the flood. So it seems to be uh, pretty clear that all the way up to this point, everyone spoke the same language, used the same words. Uh, There was no variance. They all understood each other. Imagine for a moment what that would be like today. It's kind of interesting to think about, isn't it? What if we were to fly over to France or to Russia, or to China, and everybody just spoke the same language. You could communicate. It didn't matter where you were or what you looked like. That would be pretty amazing, because uh, language barriers definitely present their challenges, don't they? Um, there's, I know in, in many of my missionary travels, I've been, for those of you who don't know, I've been to Mexico many times. I've uh, been down to Peru and to Chile, uh, China a few times, uh, Ireland, Australia... I've had the, God has blessed me with many opportunities to meet different people groups and to, to share the gospel and to serve as a missionary. But um, the language barrier definitely played a big part, uh, a very big part. And, you know, I'm not uh, very good at anything but English and uh, other than uh, some sign language. And it's, and, you know, but it's interesting how God uh, can use even people who don't know the language to share the gospel or to uh, do his work. You know, and I remember one time when I was uh, down in uh, South America and Peru, uh, then we went de- journey down to Arica, Chile. Uh, actually, Matthew was with me there. You remember that trip, I'm sure. It was a great trip. But it was funny because uh, he and I actually were two of the, uh, I think, least fluent in Spanish on the team. And so it was always a struggle uh, going along and, and trying to partake in a lot of the things. We, uh, you know, serve in various ways, but we depended heavily on a translator. But it was really neat. One of the days we were down in Arica, Chile, we ran across this deaf couple, and uh, they didn't understand Spanish, obviously. They couldn't speak at all. And Matthew and I were the only two on the team that knew sign language. So here we were in South America communicating with someone and able to tell them a little bit about what we were doing there. And and it was really cool, really, really cool how God gave us that opportunity and used the skill sets we had. Um, But we see all these languages all throughout the world now, and it's hard to imagine a world without it but once, uh, it was not that way. Picking up, we're going to talk a little bit more about the implications of this later, but let's pick back up in verse 3. It says, Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So in this story, initially, it's a bit unclear as to why God's not so happy with their industrious efforts. Um, You know, it's not exactly spelled out, or we're not exact. there's no real commentary added in Scripture itself saying, and here's what they did wrong. Uh, It's except, you know, if we look a little more closely, I think we'll get to understand why God responded the way He did. But if we look uh, in the previous chapter, we start to get some clues. First of all, in the previous chapter, we learn about how they came to travel to this place, this plain of Shinar. It was under the leadership of a certain man named Nimrod. How many you have heard of Nimrod? Nimrod, if you don't recall Nimrod, that's not a compliment. Uh, Nimrod is someone who's quite infamous in his day, but he was the one who led this journey. We're told in the previous chapter that he brought them there, and he was um, uh, a great warrior, a hunter. He was um, a major leader in that time, and established many cities. And we're going to talk a little bit more about him a little bit farther down the road. But this place, this place called Babel, was the first of the cities listed in the previous chapter that he established. So they hatched their plan. We see here in verse 3 and 4. They want to bake these, bake these bricks. They want to get the strongest bricks possible. They want to make this, this thing uh, pretty epic here. They want to build this city with a tower that reaches to heaven. And their goals are pretty simple. They want to make a name for themselves, and they want to be known and feared, basically. They want to be preeminent. They want to really uh, have power and, and have uh, reputation. So these are their goals. And they want to avoid being, being scattered. They want to have a centralized dwelling and place of commerce. So what's wrong with all of this? Well, quite a few things, turns out. Actually, if we look closely at the text and we look also at the commands of God, we'll understand... Why God does what He does. First of all, let's look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. Right after they exit the ark, God gives some commands and some blessings to the people, doesn't He? Right? Remember that? We talked about that. We studied that. And He blesses them and He, commi- and he commissions them. The very first thing He tells them to do is what? He says, God blesses them, Noah and His sons, and He says to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Did he tell them to all gather in one place and stay there? No. He told them to fill the earth. He told them to go out, to be fruitful and to multiply. Well, one of their first objectives here is to avoid being scattered, to stay together and just huddle in one place. Well, that's a clear and clear defiance of God's first commandment after they exited the ark. So tip number one right there, they're obviously in rebellion against God's, God's command here. They're not doing what God commissioned them to do. God commissioned them to go out, and they're staying together. God said, go, they stayed. You know, it's interesting that the founder of this city, Nimrod, also founded a city called Nineveh, and we know the story of Jonah, don't we? It's also a story about someone who was told to go somewhere and had a hard time doing it. So it's kind of interesting, that correlation there. But Nimrod also founded a rebellious city called Nineveh, and we know about that city from the book of Jonah. So, reading on, it says, let us make a name for ourselves. So, uh, clearly, their goal is not to honor God. Their goal is not to obey His commands or, do, or perform His purposes. Their goal is what? To serve who? Them- themselves. Let's make a name for ourselves. We want to be great. This sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? This sounds like something we've talked about before, how pride uh, was Satan's downfall, And it's a common thread throughout the downfall of mankind. It's constantly used, self-seeking and pride. That's the essence of it we see right here. There's no thought of honoring God or obeying his commands. They want earthly fame. They want glory. They want power. And it's no mystery who they got that from. They got that from their leader and example, Nimrod. And we're going to learn a little more and talk a little more about him. So first of all, we know from that previous chapter, Nimrod was the mastermind of this Initial migration now in chapter 10, it doesn't tell us much. It just says he founded this city and this city and this city. It kind of makes it sound like he just kind of popped these cities up all over the place, but that's not what happened. His initial plan was, we're given his initial plan here, we're given a close look at his initial plan here in Babel. His plan was to build this glorious tower, this empire, keep it centralized, bring glory and fame to it, uh, and that was the initial plan. These other, these other cities were clearly an afterthought. So who is Nimrod? Nimrod. How do we know he's evil? Well, looking at the previous text, it also seems a bit uh, unclear because it just says he was a mighty hunter and things like that. But we're going to look at it with a little more deeper examination and it will become a little more clear. First of all, the nations that he founded, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, these, uh, these people groups that ultimately the Israelites come in contact with later on in Scripture, we do know quite a bit about them. And they're marked by their evil cruelty by their utter immorality uh, they they're absolutely horrible horrible people and they're bent on conquest and these are these are all these places that he founded none of them have any kind of history of honoring god so they're they're marked completely by idol worship by cruelty by sensuality nimrod's name itself means rebel or the rebel it actually appears to be a bit more of a title when you look at the original text than a name. And, and so it's, uh, you know, it's a bit unclear as to what his actual name was, but Nimrod meant the rebel. So he was called the rebel. He was known for being rebellious, and he was rebellious against God. He was, he was one of the first key leaders to rise up and, and lead a rebellion against God, clearly under Satan's, under Satan's uh, influence. Um, There's writings of the historian Josephus that also speak of Nimrod's evil and rebellion. Josephus claims that it was Nimrod that began the first rebellion against God and purposely incited the people to abandon their faith in service of the true and living God. And so Josephus is a historian who's noted for being uh, pretty accurate in a lot of his accounts, but he also speaks of Nimrod and nothing good. Many historians actually believe him to also be the same man as a famed evil rural, ruler who seems to be, appear on the scene about the same time as Nimrod. Again, the name Nimrod actually appears to be more of a title, um, but there's a, a man by the name of Gilgamesh who comes on the scene around the same time. who's spoken about in some other um, contemporary writings, and uh, it talks about him uh, in the writings of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and their literature, and they describe him as a man of great arrogance Ruthless tyranny, and unrestrained depravity. Uh, this is how his own people described him in these writings. And it's, it's thought by uh, many historians that Gilgamesh is actually the same man as Nimrod. Um, so in every place we look, every clue that leads back to this guy, none of it is good. And even though they're not given some immediate, clear details here in the text, we look at the results of the cities he founded throughout Scripture, we look at the results of his efforts, and they're all marked by rebellion against God and following complete depravity. So Nimrod was not a good guy, and he is the guy who founded this city. So that should give us a pretty good indication as to their purpose and plan for it. Micah 5.5 tells us, uh, re- reiterates this. Uh, this is, there's one of many scriptures that talk about um, some of the people groups that uh, Nimrod founded. But this in particular relates to the Assyrians. We also know, obviously, the Babylonians. It says... Uh, In this one shall be peace when the Assyrian comes to our land, and when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria, the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. And so it seems clear from the scripture here that he was also the founder of the Assyrians, Um, And so we we can gather through Scripture a pretty good picture of who this Nimrod character is. Uh, The Plains of Shinar, let's talk a little bit about that. Where is that? Um, First of all, the Tower of Babel, just so you know, has never been found. Uh, There are many who have searched for it. Obviously, a lot of time has transpired. A lot of battles have taken place. A lot of people groups have swept through there. And it's clear in the Scripture that God didn't let them finish the tower anyway. So we don't really know how far they got along doesn't sound like all that far so it may not be much of a tower even if if the remnants were found but um, we can know a little bit about it Uh, first of all um, the name itself the name itself uh, is many times ascribed to being somewhat synonymous with Babylon Um, it is not however the name Babel actually comes from a, a pretty ancient dialect that we don't really know what it meant uh, we know the name. We don't really know what it meant based on the dialect. We actually know what it meant based on scriptures here because it says in verse 9 that therefore its name is Babel because the Lord confused the language. So clearly the word Babel means confusion. Uh, so we know from scripture what that word means. However, the word Babylon actually actually means gateway to God. And, and we know that because we, <clears throat> we can look at the ancient Greek and we can actually decipher what that means. <clears throat> so they're not the same word. However, uh, following the trail through scripture, we can see that Babylon and the, and the, the city of Babel uh, do appear to be ultimately one in the same area. Um, so, it's tri- diff- though it's difficult to track, I'm going to give you some clues here. Uh, but cities change their name throughout history. I'll give you a good example of that. There was a famous city that originally founded was known as uh, Lagos, if I'm pronouncing correctly. Anybody hear that city? Lagos? No? Okay. Well, then, uh, when it was Latinized, it was uh, retitled, renamed as Byzantium. Anybody that ring a bell, maybe? I've heard of that. Founded by Greek colonists, and this was in 667 B.C. By 3rd century A.D., it was given the name Augusta Antonia uh, for a brief time, and then in about between 408 and 450 A.D., it was called Constantinople. Then, later on, it was renamed Istanbul. So we now know it as Istanbul, but throughout history it's had many names. And that's actually a classic of many of the ancient lands and the cities there. The names being changed, renamed by rulers who conquer them. So it's difficult to track some of these things. But we get some clues. So Shinar, the original language, actually means land of two rivers. In Hebrew, land of two rivers it seems to be the best, uh, best um, definition of what that root word actually comes from. And it seems to clearly refer to the land based on the description uh, somewhere between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, land of Mesopotamia, somewhere somewhere in the land of Mesopotamia, quite a bit east of of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, It's basically a northeastern Syria area is where it seems to refer to. Shinar is a well-known area in Bible times, and it's mentioned several places in Scripture. I'll give you a couple uh, just so you have some of that information. After settling in Canaan, one of the kings, Abraham, fought. And defeated was Amraphel, king of Shinar, in Genesis 14, 1 and 9. Achan, you guys remember Achan? After a battle, they had spoils, and and, uh, Achan stole some of those spoils and hid them under his tent after the Battle of Ai, remember that? And then all of Israel suffered because of his disobedience. Well, it says one of the things he stole was a beautiful mantle from Shinar. Uh, Shinar is also mentioned in Isaiah 11:11 um, 11, 11, when God speaks of recovering the remnant of his people and bringing them in. One of the lands mentioned there is the lands of Shinar. Daniel also gives us a good idea and insight into tying all of this together, and we'll read to you from Daniel 1, uh, starting in verse one. Daniel 1 verse 1 says, "In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. And so it seems pretty clear that Shinar, the plains of Shinar, is the same place where Babylon ultimately ended up being as well, or where the Assyrians passed through, and ultimately tracking it all the way back to Babel here. Uh, the city of Babel and the Tower of Babel. Uh, so we can kind of trace this thread through and kind of get a good idea of what was the city and what where, and where did it become? How was it founded? We can get some good insight in looking through Scripture. And I encourage you to dig a little deeper in that. And Shinar is also mentioned at the end of the Old Testament in Zechariah 5. So there's a lot of passages that give us a pretty good idea, but it seems that it makes the most sense that it was in southern Mesopotamia, uh, northeast Syria area between the Tigris and Euphrates River uh, modern day times. Somewhere in that area is where this area seems to be. Um, but let's talk a little more about what Babel and Babylon represent in Scripture. Um, because that's a name we're familiar with, isn't it? Babylon. The city of Babylon. We know that's where the Israelites uh, were captive. And we see that in Daniel. But we also see the city of Babylon referenced throughout the Bible in a, in a not so complimentary way. And Revelation specifically talks about Babylon in more of a figurative sense, and what Babylon represents. Um, looking in Revelation 14, starting verse 8, Revelation 14, it says, And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen, is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality." and then spoken in more detail in chapters 16 and 17, and ultimately declared to be fallen in chapter 18 of Revelation. We see this representation of Babylon being basically the essence of rebellious, godless world system under satanic influence. That's what Babylon represented. And we trace that all the way back to this city, all the way back to the Tower of Babel, the city of Babel, and you see that it becomes the epitome, it becomes the the representation of a godless world system, a system under the influence of Satan himself. Traced all the way back to this city we're reading about here in chapter 11. And so I encourage you to read through and see some of that in Revelation. You can see it through in Revelation chapter 14 through 18. But we're going to go ahead and move on in our passage here tonight. So picking up back in Genesis 11, uh, verse 5, it says, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. So he's going, Man, look at what they're doing. Right off the bat, they're unifying in rebellion against me. They're unifying in rebellion against me. And it says, Now nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them. We're given a hint as to another reason for what God did in in these two verses here. If you remember before the flood, remember they all had the same language. And we see that it almost looks like they're heading the same direction as before the flood, because before the flood, evil ran rampant, didn't it? There was no, there was no border, there was no, there was no preventing it from spreading like a disease. And it was just, it says that everybody was evil, everybody was depraved, everybody was, was utterly rebellious, and no one sought after God, except for this one family that, that God found, this right, one righteous man in Noah. And it seems like God is sort of hinting at how nothing they propose to do will be held from him, them. It's like they're heading the same direction. They're all getting together, and they're all collaborating in rebellion and, and, and going to destroy themselves. They're headed this direction again. And so we see in here that we're given a pretty good reason as to why, why God did what he did. He, brought the out, he introduced the language barrier. He said, okay, we're going to kind of control this disease we call sin. We're going to control this, this rampant rebellion and, by splitting them all up by creating these language barriers and in essence now we're kind of isolating the problems. We're not allowing evil to run rampant. It's obvious now that humankind cannot handle the ability to communicate so freely with one another and to collaborate on their with their own efforts and their own intentions. There was an inherent problem that fallen human mankind, mankind in a sinful state, could not handle that kind of free flow of information. I think about for example the internet today. I think that gives a bit of a hint of the problem that was being experienced in this day. How how long does it take for for evil to travel the globe via the internet? One second, click of a button. With, a, with the click of a mouse, you can negative influence can be spread around the world that fast. And we see the devastating effects of it. It nearly starts wars sometimes. It's, it's incredible how dangerous that flow of communication can be in our fallen human state, in our state of of having fallen away from God and and law and having the sinful nature. We can't handle that privilege. We can't handle that ability. So God set up the language barrier. He, he saw fit to confuse the languages and force them uh, to split up and spread out and to obey his original command. It seems like that it's one of Satan's main ploys in end times ties right into this as well. What do we hear about in Revelation? We hear about a one world order, Right? One world system. We see this sort of repeated in end times. How, and it's another one of, it seems like a classic Satan tactic to try and create this one world unified system, and it represented by Babylon and it, this, this system that revolves around rebellion against God. And we, so we see it pop up again this effort to unite all under this cause. And it's a downfall of mankind, and it's what triggered the flood. And so God put a stopgap in there. He put some boundaries in there via the language barrier. That's why he did it. So we see this consequence coming on here in verse 7. It says, Come, let us go down. Let us confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So they can't collaborate. They can't continue down this path they're headed. It's going to force them to kind of start fresh, and that will hopefully give them the opportunity, as some did, obviously, return to following the Lord, stop following Nimrod's bad advice, and the, that of his, those who uh, followed him. And so the Lord, verse 8, scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth. And they ceased from building the city. So God put an end to that effort. And therefore, its name is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. You know, language barriers can also prove to be a dangerous thing and be used for evil. For instance, this isn't something I have personally experienced, but I've heard some pretty scary stories about people who have attempted to get a tattoo in another country, and you tell them what you want on the tattoo, and that doesn't turn out so well. And now you're stuck with something for the rest of your life, that some insult on your shoulder or something like that. Uh, but you see how the language barrier can kind of backfire. <clears throat> you know, I, I know I experienced that in China when you try to you know, go to their, their night markets and try and buy or sell things. Uh, man, they'll try and take advantage of you. They'll try and take advantage of the fact that you don't understand them very well. And uh, next thing you know, you're, you're getting something you thought was for free, but now they're, now you have to pay for it or they try and, they try and rope you in. Um, relying on translators can be dangerous sometimes. So you've got to be careful. You know what? Um, what's, what's cool to see in Scripture something I want to bring to light is that this is something that God also redeems later on. And if we look at the book of Acts, book of Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1, I want to read to you how God redeems this, this, very, this very thing He did here in Genesis in the day of Pentecost. Starting in 2 verse 1, it says, "...and the day of Pentecost had fully come, they're all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting." And there appeared to them divided tongues of fire, and one sat on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every other nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were amazed, and they marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all those who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthenians, Medes, uh, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cap- Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phy- Phygia, uh Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in all our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So God here, in sort of this first act in launching the church, redeemed this sort of this very thing that he did back in Genesis 11 to stop evil and then he kicked off the church and the gospel and his plan of redemption in in by using the gift by initiating the gift of tongues and the ability to share the gospel without boundary without border with everyone who was there and it gives quite a list of the diversity of people that were there at that time everybody hearing the good works of God in their own tongue how awesome is that that God here in Acts, redeemed what we saw happen to stop evil back in Genesis 11. You know, um, and I've heard stories about this happening in modern times. Um, Actually, Mara, uh, my wife, was telling me a story about how God used her in a similar way in Mexico. Uh, Back in 2002, she went on a mission trip down there. And uh, she went with some of the groups from the Bible College. And uh, they were down there, she's Speaks very little Spanish, a little bit of broken Spanish. Primarily those key phrases that keep you alive is about what she knew. Um, not a lot. And they were doing an outreach down there in Mexico. They were having a concert, and then they did uh, you know, some skits. And skits are a really nice tool internationally because they display the message that's kind of universal when you see it acted out. And Mara noticed uh, a man standing by who appeared to be really confused. He wasn't understanding really what was going on. And he was trying to, it seemed like he was trying to get it. He was was kind kind of looking like he was concerned or confused. And Mara really felt like God was telling her to go talk to him. And so she said, okay, well, here goes. She walks up to him and starts to talk to him. And she was just amazed. She was able to share the gospel with him, explain the whole skit to him. Absolutely no issues speaking any word that came to her mind that she wanted to share. She was able to speak basically fluently in Spanish and share with this guy and, and introduced him to a, a local pastor. And I believe he, later on he came to know the Lord, gave his life to the Lord, and God used her in an amazing way and, right at that moment. And what's interesting, and what's funny is, shortly thereafter, she was so excited about that experience, she said, well, I'm going to try that again. And she ran out to speak to this uh, family that was nearby, just kind of the first people she saw, and she starts trying to talk to them, and she, it, she couldn't get it to work again. Like, she couldn't, she couldn't do it. And she was fumbling over words. She could barely think of what to say. And after a while of struggling, uh, the family in their broken English said to her, it's okay, we're, we're already Christians, it's all right. <laughs> it's, it's just kind of funny. But it was clearly a work of God. It was clearly a work of God's spirit. It wasn't something she could manufacture. It wasn't something that she could do on her own. It wasn't something she knew. God called her to do something she obeyed, and God used it in the same way we see here in Acts. And she was able to lead someone to the Lord. And, and God still does that. And God still does that. When people obey, it's amazing what God can do through them. Amen? So let's go ahead and move on. Let's pick up in these genealogies. So we've read through most of them here. Picking up in verse 10, it says this is the genealogy of Shem. He was 100 years old, begot Arphaxed two years after the flood. After he begot Arphaxed, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Our lived 35 years, begot Salah. After we got Salah, our fax had lived 403 years, and begot sons and daughters. Salah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After we got Eber, Salah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. And Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. After we got Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. And Peleg lived 30 years and begot Reu. After we got Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. It's interesting also we'll notice as we go through this genealogy, you're going to notice that people start living a little shorter and shorter and lifespans start, start falling down, start cutting down after the flood here. We see that clearly the environment has changed, things have changed. People are no longer living six, eight, nine hundred 900 years. People are starting to live 400 years and then 3 and then 2 and kind of hovering around the 200. And It's interesting how we're already seeing the effects of the curse and of sin, of the flood and that judgment. Uh, on the lifespans in this. A um, couple notes about Peleg, an interesting character. I know Dave talked about him a little bit, um, but Peleg, how many have heard of him? I, I think Dave said he was like the first Old Testament pirate with a wooden leg or something like that. <laughs> Peleg. There's actually more to him than that. Um, his name actually means, literally, uh, in, in the form that it's here in the text, it means earthquake. It literally means earthquake, but it can also be taken to mean a channel of water or a stream. Uh, what's interesting is it's sourced from the root word "palag," which literally means to split or divide. And so that's where we we get kind of get the ultimate conclusion that his name means division, or his name means to divide because that's the root of his current of his name. Now there's two thoughts on this. One me one is that that his Name. He was named after he was named for this name because, and in chapter ten talks about during his time. This is when the nations were divided. Some believe that means that it literally the land geographically split up and divided during his lifetime. That we we're seeing uh, the sort of the one supercontinent, uh, often referred to as Pangaea, sort of split off into what we see all the current continents today, um, and that that happened during his time, and he was named for that sort of event going on. Uh, Or, number two, second way to look at this would be that it refers simply uh, to the languages and peoples being divided. Now, uh, it's tough to tell because it's not spelled out. It's not given to us exactly what is being referenced, but I can give you my best guess based on the text and based on what we have. Um, Based on how it's interpreted in the text in the previous chapter, saying that his name refers to the division of the peoples and the nations, or uh, refers to how the nations were divided, and based on the context of chapter 10 and 11, the whole theme throughout is talking about how God divided the nations, the people groups, and the languages, and how God sent everybody out and spread them out. And my, uh, I, I think my, my best guess is that most of the actual geographic splitting up uh, began happening at the flood, because that's when the, we're told the, the fountains of the deep were broken up. We see all of this massive shifting and changing happening right at the point. Uh, uh, certainly more of it could have continued to happen and settle after the flood, um, but the context of it that makes a strong argument for it being referring to this event at Babel where the nations were divided, where the languages and the people groups were divided, and then they spread out and, sp- and finally obeyed what God called them to obey and, and began going to these other places. I'm sure... The geography looked different in that time than it does today, especially shortly after the flood. It was radically changed and probably continued to settle for quite some time into what we see today. Um, how that exactly looks, I don't know. I wasn't there with a video camera, and the Bible doesn't tell us exactly. Uh, but that's what the text indicates. And so I, all I can do is give you that, and, um, and uh, that's, that's all we know at this point. Picking up in verse 20, It says, Reu lived 32 years and begot Sarug. After he begot Sarug, Reu lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. So here is someone living only about 239 years. Not very long comparatively to those prior to the flood. Sarug lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Sarug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. And then Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. And after he begot Terah, Nahor lived... 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now, Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So suddenly it gets more detailed. Suddenly we're told a little bit more about this person, Terah. And we're told a little bit more about his descendants. Because obviously it's focusing in on God's plan of redemption, on who God is choosing to bring forth ultimately the Messiah and bring salvation to the earth. And so it's focusing in on this guy, Terah, and on his sons. So this is the genealogy, verse 27 of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. We here learn a lot more about Lot later on as well. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. So it gives us, again, well, all of a sudden we're getting all these details we didn't get on any of the previous people mentioned. Suddenly we're finding out all of the names of, of the brothers here, the, um, Abram's uh, nephew, and this interesting fact about Sarai, which obviously is going to be important later because we were going to find out later, obviously, that Abram is going to be the one God chooses to go forth and to fulfill his command uh, to be his chosen people. And Sarah's barren. So clearly, God's going to do a miraculous work here, and it's already brought up in setting the stage for what God's going to promise and do in the coming chapters. It says in Terah, Terah, verse 31, took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. So they set out to go to Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. And so the days of Terah... Or 205 years and Terah died in Haran. You know, it's, it's interesting this, these last couple of verses, especially verse 31, how it talks about how Terah, Abram's father, set out to go to the land of Canaan. Well, the land of Canaan should ring a bell for us. What is the land of Canaan? What is the land of Canaan ultimately going to be? The promised land, right? That's where Moses was commanded to lead the people. That was going to be the land that God intended to give his people, all of that land. And it's interesting that Abram's father set out to go there prior to us being told about you know, Abram being called there. And it makes you kind of wonder, did God maybe originally call Abram's father? And maybe he got part way, and found a happy place and decided not to carry on, did not fulfill the command. We don't know. It's not, we're not told that. But it's interesting that we're told that he set out to go to Canaan, and then he ended up settling in Haran and not going all the way there and going where he intended to go. So it's kind of an interesting note here that he set out ultimately to go to the place where God would call Abram to go and where God, where God would promise Abram that he would, he would, that his people would fill that land, that would be their land. And, and Abram's father originally set out to go and settle there but didn't make it. So it's an interesting note. Again, we may never know if God originally asked Terah to begin that journey and he didn't follow through. We don't know, but it's interesting to speculate. So in conclusion, you know, in this chapter, we see a lesson in obedience, and we see consequences for failure to obey. And there's things that, even though this is, we look at this from a historical standpoint, I think there's some things we really, as Christians, as believers today, we need to hone in on and take, take to heart. Because we, the same truth applies to us today. You know, has God called you? To something, to go somewhere, to do something, and you have to ask yourself: Did I obey that? Have I obeyed when God gives me that nudging, when I feel a spirit telling me to to help that person, or go to this place, or maybe to share uh, share with someone, or to pray for someone? Or do we just kind of walk the other way, like like Jonah? Or do we not go far enough, like Tara here? And as Christians, we have a calling to go somewhere too, and we often refer to that as the Great Commission. Matthew 28 spells this out for us. It says that go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That was Jesus' command to us, to his church. We're given a command to go now. We're given a command to go somewhere. We have a mission. We're on a mission here. And I want to leave you with Romans 10 starting in verse 13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And how shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace and who bring glad tidings of good things. Amen. And we as believers, you know, we've been called to go. We've been called to be on a mission. God is, just as surely as God gave the people in that day command to go out and multiply and to fill the earth, to go forth and be fruitful, he commands us to be, go forth and be fruitful. And as we walk out these doors, we have a purpose. We're not supposed to just go about our lives and kind of blend in with the world. We're supposed to be different. We're on a mission. We have a purpose. And as we read further on, as we get into the life of Abram and his specific calling, it's something we can relate to. Because God has something specific for us. He's got a place he want wants us to go in the sense that he wants us to go into the world for the purpose of sharing the gospel, for the purpose of displaying the gospel and making disciples. And so I encourage you in that. Let this Tower of Babel be a lesson uh, and, and see the beauty of how God's sovereignty blends in with our free will, how we get to choose to serve him, we get to choose to worship him. Uh, we get that privilege. I don't take it lightly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the lessons we can learn in chapter 11 here in Genesis. And the story of this city. The city that became an emblem of disobedience. An emblem of rebellion. And an emblem of those consequences. And Lord, we don't want anything to do with that. Lord, may our lives be marked by obedience and by fruitfulness. By bringing you glory. And by expanding your kingdom. May we be about your business in all that we do. And so we pray just your blessing on each person here tonight. We thank you so much for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.